Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with cell phones in schools. Should they be banned in all BC classrooms. They're doing it in other provinces. I've got Kevin Falcon standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report. Global News reporter Angela Young. When Quebec elementary and secondary students return to class next week, cell phones will be banned, except for learning activities. It's the second province to implement stricter rules after Ontario. The reason why we want to do it is because we want to help with the concentration of kids. Okay, you heard the uh, Quebec education minister there talking about the new restrictions in on cell phones in Quebec schools. Ontario has brought in restrictions too. Let's discuss it now. Should we do it here as well? My guest is Kevin Falcon, leader of BC United, leader of the official opposition at the legislature. I'm always pleased to welcome him. Kevin, thank you for coming on. And thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. So let's talk about this now. Where do you guys stand on cell phones in schools in BC? Well, we called... Uh almost a year ago now for a banning of cell phones in schools. Um, the reason we did that is because we're hearing increasingly from teachers, but also um, that frankly, there's a huge amount of reports and data pouring in now about the negative impacts uh, that it has on terms of kids uh, in our school system. What, what the reports all show and the, you know, one of the most uh, well-known reports was the UNESCO report. It basically shows that kids learn less and perform worse as a result of cell phones. The distractions are enormous. It makes it difficult for classroom management. Uh, you've got kids spending a lot of time on things like TikTok and Snapchat and not frankly concentrating on what's going on in the classroom. That's not good for our kids. It's not good for educational outcomes and it's something that uh, needs to change. Okay, when you take a look at other provinces here, we just heard in that report that Quebec has brought in restrictions. Ontario has done province-wide restrictions as well. BC falling behind on this? Like, what are the trends here? Other provinces, other jurisdictions seem to be going in this direction. Oh, yeah, absolutely, BC's falling behind. Uh, that's why, you know, I called for this a, a year ago because I really, you know, I've been following this quite carefully. It's not just the fact I'm married to an educator. It's the fact that I look at what's happening around the world. And, you know, let's face it, like cell phones and technology have have grown in leaps and bounds. And I think it's gone beyond uh, our ability to fully understand the implications of, of what impacts they have on our youth, uh, especially young women. And as that evidence comes pouring in now, I think we have to make sure that we're doing the right thing, for, you know, the right thing for our kids and making sure that when they're in the classroom, you know, they're only, they're only there from nine to three. There's not a huge amount of the day, but let's make sure that during the times that they're in the classrooms, they're actually learning and they're not being distracted. And by the way, there's other benefits. It reduces cyberbullying among kids. That's a good thing. Um, and what we've said is that we would fund uh, essentially cell phone lockers so that when kids come to school, they park their cell phones, go off to class, do their things. At lunchtime, they can re-engage with their cell phones, connect with their parents, whatever the case may be, and then put them back and then back to school in the afternoon and they can focus on on education and learning. And I'll tell you speaking, why. Other- speaking of connecting with parents, let me ask you about that part of it, because I have heard from some parents who say, no, I don't like this idea of a ban. I want to be connected to my kid, especially if you've got a special needs child in school. And some parents like to be able to coordinate with kids during the day in, in, in some cases. What would you say to parents who want to keep that connection with their kids? Well, first of all, uh, with the cases of special needs or where 
there's rare exceptions like that or or you know there's some educational purpose that's really important yes you can absolutely have an exception in those cases but for the vast majority of kids out there uh and even frankly uh you know i know parents want to be able to connect with their kids uh you know whenever they want to etc but we also have to think about the broader issue of making sure our kids are performing well and doing well in the school system and and frankly lunchtime is when they can access their phones connect with their their parents let's remember you know somehow for decades decades we managed in bc to have a situation where parents need to get hold of their kids they could easily yeah. do it by calling the, the the office at the school and connecting with their kids they've got a very good system right now for being able to do that i'm pretty sure our children will survive and parents will survive uh if we have a carve out for those that have special needs uh, kids for sure Speaking to Kevin Falcon, leader of BC United, leader of the opposition at the legislature, we, at the beginning of a new year, it's an election year in British Columbia. The election scheduled in October. Who knows if the premier calls a snap election and goes earlier, he, he's constantly denied he will do that, but I guess you never know. What is at the top of your priority list here in an election year right now when you look ahead? Well, I think that the most important thing to me, honestly, is just saying to the public, like, Look at what's going on in BC right now. And and does anyone feel like things have gotten better over the last almost eight years of NDP government? I mean, we've got the most expensive housing in North America. We've got the highest average rents in Canada. Grocery price increases in BC are amongst the highest in the country. Uh, crime is the worst we've ever seen it. Uh, healthcare has never been worse. We're literally sending patients to the United States uh, to get basic cancer care. And I think at the end of the day, if we want different results, we've got to get different people in there to know how to get things done and know how to focus on results and outcomes. And that's really um, what I'm going to be talking to the public about is making sure that we have a government that's held accountable for outcomes, not for what they mm. promise, not for their announcements and reannouncements, but for actual outcomes. Mm. That's how I'd want to be held accountable as premier. We're, we're doing a, a segment later on the show today on the growing level of public debt in British Columbia. Brand new report out on that, ringing the alarm about increases in the debt. Do you have concerns there? Do you think the debt is too high? Do you think government needs to rein in spending? Well, look, here's the, yes, I've said this before. You know yeah. this, Mike. And, and my big concern is they've more than doubled the debt. But what do we have to show for it? This is what the public really needs to understand. I mean, if you're going to more than double the debt and put us in a situation where our kids and grandkids are going to be paying this off for many generations, what benefit are we getting out of it? And the problem, the concern I have is, I'm not able to point to anything that can say things have gotten better in BC. And that should really be a, 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 an alarm for the public out there. When you've more than doubled the debt, when you've increased the civil service by 36%, and yet you're getting worsening results in healthcare, in crime, in education. Uh, you know, we were talking about cell phones, but it's worth noting that the uh, student assessment rankings show that last year we saw, or, or the last couple of months, a report came out showing that we've had a dramatic really devastating drop in outcomes in our educational performance. We lie yeah. behind Alberta in every single subject area. So that's not good either. So when we're spending all that money and, and piling on all this debt to get worse results, that ought to be a red flag. Okay, let me ask you the question that is still hanging out there, and you're probably sick and tired of being asked about this, but when you take a look at the political landscape of this province here and this, this upstart, surging B.C. Conservative Party, which just seems to be coming in second place in every poll that comes out uh what are your concerns there let me play a clip here for you john rustad leader bc conservative party on the show last week and we uh, we talked about this he mentions your party here let's listen i'll get your reaction what i do believe is that the coalition that was the bc liberal party has fallen apart 
Um, I think, quite frankly, that um, you know we, we're seeing a change in politics in British Columbia, and people are really looking for a different option. Okay, you mentioned the BC Liberal Party there, of course. The party's now changed its name to BC United, which was a, a move that you supported. What are your concerns here about this party and, and your party being in third place in all these polls? Well, first of all, I, I, I always say to people, be very, very careful about polls, because what, what that mostly is, and this is very easy to prove out, is just confusion between people confusing the BC Conservatives with the federal Conservatives. And as I've said to the media many, many times, if you don't believe me, just go out and ask the first 10 random people on the street who the leader of the BC Conservative Party is. And eight out of 10 won't know, and two out of 10 will think it's Pierre Polyev. Um, you know, and so I keep saying the same thing. The public's a lot smarter than, frankly, people give them credit for. Uh, by the time the election rolls around, the public will know uh, who is capable of actually forming government and governing this province. And that means, uh, you know, you need a group of uh, people that include uh, existing MLAs that have experience and skill sets that are really important, so they're ready to govern the next day. And frankly, uh, the kind of new candidates that are exceptional, of exceptional quality. Well, we'll, have, we'll have all of that. And so I feel very confident uh, by the time well, the election comes around, we'll be in good shape. Okay. But if you went out and did another question on the street and stop people and, t and talk to them and ask them who's the leader of the BC United Party, what do you think the result would be on that question? Because I, I suspect a lot of people wouldn't even know what BC United is, never mind who the leader is. Well, that's true. If you ask them who Kevin Falcon is, you'll get a much higher result for sure. But at the end of the day, I really think that most of the public does not identify themselves as, you know, they don't walk around saying, I'm a BC conservative, or I'm a federal conservative, or I'm a liberal, or I'm a whatever. 95% of the public don't belong to any political parties. And what they're going to be yeah. looking for is who has the leadership skill set to fix the problems our, our economy is facing. And I think that most people will agree that things are not going well in British Columbia, to say the least. Uh, and it's time that we get some leadership in there that's got the experience both in the private sector and the public sector to actually get things turned around. And I think I offer that and I'm willing to uh, and looking forward to that opportunity to engage in that debate and see where the public uh, decides to go. OK, I'm looking forward to it, too, this year. Thank you for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me, Mike. Are you in the market for a new or used vehicle in 2024? We got you covered here on that brand new report out. Look ahead for the new year in this market. Prices, well, vehicles still pretty pricey, that's for sure. Some good news on the supply of new vehicles getting a bit better. We'll also tell you about the EV owner, the electric vehicle owner, who was told the replacement cost of his vehicle's battery was more than what he paid for the whole vehicle. This is unbelievable. I got Sonder and Fanaretta standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report. The Global News reporter, Kyle Benning. Data from AutoTrader shows the average cost of a new car in Canada is more than $67,000, more than 14% higher than this time last year. And the average cost of a used car is more than $36,000, about 2% more than last January. We're finally returning to normalcy on the production side, which means that there are, will be more availability of vehicles on lots. Okay, I've talked to people who've had some long waits to get the vehicle that they want. Maybe that'll start to improve. Let's discuss it now with my guests, Sonderin Fanaretta. Sonderin is a on an auto industry analyst. He is very popular on TikTok. You should follow him on there. Cars with Sonderin. Over 400,000 likes on TikTok. Sonderin, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. 
Okay, what do you think of that outlook there? When you look at those prices, man, those prices are still seem pretty sticky here with uh, in terms of high prices for new and used vehicles. But it, it sounds like the supply of new vehicles has improved. Is that is that what you're seeing? Yeah, that's what I'm seeing. And I think it's very manufacturer specific as well. Right? I think demand across different segments, different manufacturers and different type of vehicles is also playing a part in that. We're seeing what was it was at the top 25 sales of all vehicles. The top three vehicle sales were all trucks. And so yeah. there's this kind of complex nuance here, but I think we are seeing some reprieve from the market. Supply conditions are easing a little bit, but again, it's going to take a little bit more time. Similar to you know house prices, cars are not the most liquid assets, and so we're seeing a little bit of this start to start to, start to bubble up, really. And I think we'll see changes go out over the next six to twelve months, really, on the pricing on both new and used vehicles. Can you still get, like when you go on to a new car lot, which I haven't done in quite a long time, but I remember shopping around in the past, and man, there used to be some great deals on financing, like very low interest rate financing, uh, rebates, manufacturer rebates. Has all that gone away, or can you still get deals like that? Yeah, so interestingly, you still can get deals like that, but it's very manufacturer specific. If you went to go look for a Toyota or Lexus hybrid, for example, right now you're waiting nine months to a year. I actually have friends that are talking to those and you're paying interest rates are still quite high for those. But if you're maybe looking for some domestic vehicles, right, some other segments, there may be actually cars on the lot right now or the wait times are significantly lower. And we're seeing even on the electric vehicle side, if you're looking at that segment of the market, we're finally seeing electrical vehicle prices, those new are starting to get slashed and that's actually compressing the used vehicle electric price market. So it's really a, a sentiment of the action of prices coming back down is happening, but it's happening by kind of market segments. And overall, the headwinds are kind of going into normalizing these prices into 2024 and the back half of H2. What do you think about the idea of leasing a new vehicle? I remember many years ago, we were looking for a new vehicle for our family, and I started looking at this lease option, and it's kind of attractive, right? Okay, I'm going to have to put out less money here up front. Maybe I should lease this vehicle. And a buddy of mine told me, never do that. It's always a terrible deal to lease a new vehicle. Buy it. Go get a loan and buy it. What do you think? Like, I, I think, though, there, sometimes a, a lease makes sense, though, doesn't it? You know what? Sometimes a lease does make sense. I always ask, yeah. I went through the same question too. Do you want a lease or buy? And really yeah. it depends on who you are and what you expect. If you want, if you're somebody that changes cars, let's say every three to four years, you want something new, it's actually probably better for you to go ahead and lease. But if you're buying a car for longer term, you're like, this is what I'm going to stick with, then I would say buy. But it's really dependent on what you're looking for in your lifestyle. And I'd say also, in the last couple of years, you know, maybe people were more suiting towards leasing because of the residual values, but really it comes down to what you're expecting out of your vehicle. What do you think? Let's say you have an older vehicle, you want to get into maybe a new vehicle. Should you do a trade-in? Should you bring that used vehicle in and trade it in at the dealership? Or should you go through the hassle of selling the, the vehicle privately? Because I think you'd get a better deal if you sell it than rather than trade it in, correct? That's correct. Um, yeah. Again, it's all about time value of your money, right? You're most yeah. likely going to get a better deal um, selling your used vehicle on the private market. But if you are buying a new vehicle, that deposit or that down payment that you put up does support in reducing the cost of the vehicle and you're paying less tax. You have to do a little mm. bit of that math 
And, you know, depending on your used vehicle, if you're pretty close and the dealer's offering you something pretty similar, it's probably less hassle for you to go ahead and trade it in, get that tax benefit as well. But if you're seeing a significant enough difference, that's on you to decide whether you want to go through that hassle or not. Personally, for me, in my experience, I've gone ahead and always decided to go ahead and sell separately private, and then that's worked out. Okay, speaking to Sondra and Fanaretta, cars with Sondra and on TikTok. Okay, this story about the EV owner who had a problem with the battery on his vehicle and then got quoted a bill to replace the battery, 60 <laughs> This That's almost shocking, makes me yeah. laugh to say that sixty thousand dollars for a new battery. You gotta be kidding me. And we've talked about this on the show before, Sandra. Let me play a clip here for you. Get your thoughts. Now, this is Zach Spencer uh, from YouTube. He's got a very popular YouTube channel. And you'll also hear the voice here of the electric vehicle owner, Kyle Sue from Vancouver, and his sixty thousand dollar battery. Let's listen. Boy, have we got a story to tell you. Imagine this, a 2022 Hyundai Ioniq 5 that costs $55,000 brand new, getting a quote for over $60,000 Canadian to replace the battery more than the car is brand new. Well, I have to replace the battery, otherwise it's going to, they said it's going to explode anytime. That's how they told me. There's a big problem here, not just with Hyundai, but the entire industry when it comes yeah. to battery replacements. Okay, $55,000 EV from Hyundai, $60,000 to replace the battery, more than the vehicle cost in the first place. Sondran, what do you think of this? Oh, my God. This is a crazy <laughs> story. Um, and the Ionic 5, by the way, won best car of the year. So this is not some, you know, random electric vehicle. This is a great selling vehicle, a great vehicle. But again, this tells you battery technology and what's happening, Mike, here, it's cost this much money. This is in principle because the manufacturer decided to put all those resources in selling new vehicles to help with the supply crunch. They don't actually have parts to go ahead and build those replacement parts. In addition to that, battery technology is advancing so quickly. So they need to keep parts in for older battery technologies. And these companies are not investing into that. So what does that mean? When you need to go get a replacement, two things are happening. One, there's very little in terms of production and parts for you to even get that replacement first. Two, that technology is already getting outdated and inherently that means they're going to be making less of it and it's even more expensive to go ahead and replace. And, you know, we see this in a lot of other technology. Maybe it's not the best analogy, but your TVs, you buy a TV, maybe it starts going ahead, new technologies come out and it starts depreciating quite quickly. Any other type of electronics, because now these vehicles are becoming essentially electronic devices, right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of the drive to go to 100% electric vehicle sales here in, in very short fashion? I mean, we've got a federal target here to go to 100% EV sales. We have the same provincial target in British Columbia. Can this be done? Like when you listen to the the politicians and the government saying, we can do this, we can get to 100% EV sales or new vehicles by 2035, right? Like, is that possible in your mind? Yeah, Mike, see, I shared my thoughts on this previously, too, with you. I, I think they're being extremely aspirational. I don't think the goal is any bit achievable. It's these type of things that, we're, that really are still not solved for. Supply of parts for these EV batteries. Actually, the production of them. The infrastructure to charge them. The infrastructure to charge them in not in just your home, but multi-family dwelling homes, which you know Vancouver, for example, is now zoning for. 
Um, our climate infrastructure, right? How do we support charging up north or longer charging yeah. technologies in terms of solid state batteries? There are so many unsolved issues, Mike, and they're still planning on going through this with this target, but I don't see how some of these solutions materialize yet. So I think it's going to be a long shot for us to get to that point, and I still think there's so many issues that need to be resolved. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that the the top selling vehicles in Canada continue to be trucks, right? What is what's number one? Is it Ford F one fifty? Is that number one? It is. You yeah. got it. Yeah. What do you think about like why do you think people continue to like those big pickup trucks, especially when we see high gasoline prices? Why do people want to keep buying those trucks? Yeah, clearly there's a demand for a lot of space. People like comfort. It's no surprise. And I'm a sedan car guy, but the market has spoken. The top three are all these big trucks. And it's, yeah. it's that convenience that people are looking for, that range that people are looking for. And here I'm going to say something else, Mike. The F-150 Lightning, which you thought yes. would be an amazing replacement, that's tied to the F-150, the number one best-selling truck. They just cut production by 50%. Oh. 50%. They just cut production. And Why? Because that value prop of having a truck that's long-term, that's reliable, that can do everything that you need to do is not actually happening with the EV because the technology and the battery isn't there. So people are saying, I want the truck. The EV doesn't suffice. I'm getting the gas version or well, that's yeah. what I'm doing. Well, yeah, especially if you live in the rural north or interior or something or other parts of Canada where it gets really, really cold. Uh, maybe it doesn't have that charging infrastructure you described. Maybe you have to drive long distances. Uh, maybe in bad weather and people want a truck for that reason as well. Uh, yeah, I can see why someone would be a little dubious about buying an electric truck. Uh, you know, exactly. I mean, so, for some people it'd be good though. Like our family's thinking of getting an EV, but that's just for kind of running around town, right? It's, but they're not for everybody, are they? Exactly. And I think a lot of the truck sales also, there's a big component of wholesale fleet sales. And if you think about, if I'm on the job and I need something reliable where I'm not adding another nuance in my day and worrying about the state of charge on my truck, that's another thing I want to get rid of. So I'm just going to go with the gas option for now, especially now we're seeing, Mike, you know, the hybrids, right, which I think is yeah. a great in-between ground right now until we get to that point that we can really actually go for full EV adoption. I think the market could do for more hybrids to make everybody more efficient on the road and EVs cost so much more, a hybrid is still a good middle option between an EV. Sonder, and thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right. Let's talk about the travel industry now. And I think it is safe to say that 2023 was the year that travel roared back to life. Lots of pent-up demand out there. Lots of people hitting the road. 2024 expected to be another big year for traveling. Now, with so many people traveling, lots of very popular travel destinations get absolutely overrun with tourists. Brand new survey just out from Booking.com runs down some of the most crowded and popular tourist destinations. Does that mean that some of these popular places to visit are actually overrated, too crowded? Are there other places you could go and avoid some of these places? Got Bruce Poon Tip standing by to discuss. First, I'm going to listen to this one now. Now, this is from the very popular YouTube travel channel called Viewcation. 
and they listed the most overrated travel destinations. One of them was Venice, Italy. Have a listen. Venice, Italy. Venice, with its winding canals and historic charm, seems like a dream destination. But peel back the romanticized lair, and the reality is a city grappling with over-tourism. The narrow alleys are often congested with visitors, making a leisurely stroll a challenge. Authentic Venetian experiences are harder to come by, as many local shops have been replaced by souvenir stalls. And while a gondola ride might sound enchanting, the crowded canals and steep prices can dampen the experience. Okay. <laughs> now, if you listen to that, you think, "Oh boy, I don't want to go there." I think I'd still like to go to Venice, though. I think I'd be, I'd be nice. But you got to be prepared. Some of these places are overrun. Taking a look at that list just out from the Booking.com website here, it lists the most crowded, popular tourist destinations. Amsterdam on this list. Athens. <laughs> yeah, boy, a lot of people go there. Bali, another one. Barcelona. I remember going there one time, had a great time. Let's discuss with my guest now, Bruce Poon Tip. Bruce is the founder of G Adventures, which is an award-winning small group adventure travel company in Canada. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Bruce, thanks for coming on today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a complicated issue we're talking about today. <laughs> yeah, it is for sure, Bruce. And w- would you say I got it right there off the, st- off the top there? If you look back at 2023, I mean, it was a big bounce back for travel, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's been a huge bounce back. And I mean, we're over the pent-up demand stage that people thought there'd be pent-up demand and it's and it's continuing. So great for the travel industry, but um, not not necessarily great for, you know, uh, people who are kind of uh, evaluating the, what over-tourism truly means and how it's going to impact destinations moving forward. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that over-tourism. This is something you've been talking about for a long time, that there are other opportunities. You guys do very unique sort of adventure travel-style trips for people. Do you, What is over-tourism? What is that? Well, I mean, I, that, that, that's, that's the important question, how you define it, because you've just discussed two very different things there, an overcrowded destination and an overcrowded city. So those are two very, very different things of how you look at how you look at over-tourism, right? Um, like a destination, like India as a country, has a much bigger problem, uh, has a much different problem than Barcelona as a city or Venice, as you used as an example there. Um, and some of these, and, and but but over tourism has to be looked very differently because you can see you've also mentioned Bali on that list. Bali's um, you know doesn't have nearly the amount of tourism capacity that that uh, Barcelona or Paris would have. And so the, the idea of over-tourism is a much smaller number of people that are that are deciding to go to Bali um, now, now that the, there's, this, there's this pent-up demand to travel again. Um, and, I, and I've talked for years that over-tourism to small communities, the problem that we have is that travelers are pushing into more remote areas, actually. It's actually, you know, when you look at Venice, and Venice is like the, the flashpoint, and it's, the, it's the, the, the city that everyone kind of uses the example. You know, Venice, the city is closer to an amusement park than it is a destination. And I don't know if you know, but just after they they charge an an admission fee to to get into Venice now. It's so much like an amusement park. There's a there's a ticket fee to get into Venice now. And so the rules of a a city like Venice is very different when you're talking about over tourism. But going into smaller communities and even like, you know, indigenous communities, because there's indigenous tourism and smaller communities. You know, a group of 50 could have a great impact and be considered over tourism. Um, so as, as I said, it's very different when you look at it. And it's important that people kind of understand what over tourism mean, means when they define it for their own purposes. Are there any other destinations around the world, Bruce, that jump out at you as 
being overcrowded or over tourism as, as you describe it there like i was just watching some of these videos compiled on youtube last night just getting ready to talk to you today and one mm-hmm. of the one of the destinations that's frequently mentioned is the uh the french quarter in new orleans and yeah. Yeah, you see some videos of these places that are just absolutely packed and it, it bourbon street is is packed packed solid so often and I'm like, you know, this is a place I've always wanted to visit and see, but it does sound like it's maybe oversaturated. Are there any other places like that jump out at you, jump to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Barcelona is a very good one that, that you mentioned earlier. Because um, Barcelona is an amazing, charming city. I actually, I actually, sp- I, I lived for a month in Barcelona this last August. I, I just, I went there for a full month and I saw it firsthand. And and, and October wasn't even a, a high season month. But um, yeah, like um, certain areas in Barcelona where, where tourists are going. I mean, there's also trends, right? Like yeah. Greece, with you in Athens and Greece. So Greece, oh, through the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, is having a, an unusual boom that's almost like a fad. I don't know if it's going to go away, but it's 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 booming, and you can't predict when that's going to happen. Um, and you know, one of the countries as a, as a tour operator, as personal operator tour, one of the the countries that we've seen have, a, I think, a problem with um, a lot of an increase in tourism to that can't uh, that that pushes that their capacity is Iceland. Like there there was oh. a point there where everyone was going to Iceland, and you know you, it's not the same as Venice where you see people shoulder to shoulder, but but the capacity of the the destination can't handle the amount of people that that want to go there. And that's what causes the discomfort for locals because things start changing culturally in on the in in the area. Um, things start getting more expensive. Um, more, you know, it's not just about more people going, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder like you see in Venice or what you've seen in New Orleans. Um, it's also the impact on local people. Like Venice is a great example because the actual local people have, you know, are. Um, you know, are described as tourism invasions or tourist invasions and. They don't want tourists there, and there's a tension that's built between local people and the tourists when when they start, you know, um, when the prices of everything go up, and it's hard to it's more expensive to live there because of the expense of um, uh, of, of the expansion of or the increase in prices of everything for tourists. Iceland was a good example of that. Like as I said, Iceland isn't you're not going to see pictures of Iceland that like you'll see in in um, uh, of New Orleans, but it's still a, a problem when they they can't. They, they, they don't have the capacity for the demand that wants to go there. So their prices yeah. of everything just ends up shooting up. Um, and for us as well, like we want to run tours there and, you know, even for us to hire people and, you know, get hotels and transportation and everything, it's just, it's outrageously priced. And so that's what makes it un, unaccessible to a lot of people. Yeah. Speaking of Bruce Poon Tip, Bruce is the founder of G Adventures, which is an adventure travel company. What kind of packages do you put together there for people? I've been checking out your website today, Bruce, and for people who are interested in G Adventures, like what is adventure travel and what kind of what kind of trips do you guys put together for people there? Yeah, well, we have 11 brands of trips now. We have everything from our G Lux brand, which is a, a you know more of a high end um, comfortable, active program, but also community tourism focused. You know, we go to more remote areas, more active holidays. We have 18 to 30 something programs. We have our classics. We have National Geographic Journeys, which we do. Um, different, you know, different types of active small group holidays to over 100 countries around the world. You can join at any time. And depending on your demographic, your age, your activity level, um, we have trips for kind of every demographic now. But, um, and, you know, we we try and get people away from the tourist. Yeah. <laughs> the tourism. But right. we have to access 
we have to go through Barcelona and we go through um, New Orleans on our trips and, you know, Venice on, on some of our trips. We, so we, we see where it happens. But I mean, over tourism is such a complex issue and it's, 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 it's coming out of COVID. It's, beca- it's, it's a buzzword that everyone's using, but we have to be very careful because we have to define what over tourism really means and the negative impacts. Um, because right now it's kind of a buzzword that's connected to these images of, you know, overcrowded people. It's specifically in Venice, I use as an example, but Venice that actually, I said, I, is, is, is an amusement park now. It's, it's, as I said, they've chosen to, chose to you know, sell ticket prices now. Um, they, 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 they sell tickets for people to get there and they, it's run very differently than Barcelona, for instance, which is really a city where people are living. They have a, they have a capacity issues and, you know, tourists in there are impacting how local people live. Yeah. Bruce, it's always fascinating to talk to you. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, let's go right to your phone calls here. Ed in South Surrey. Hi, Ed. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, my experience was I'd been to Santa Rita twice. The first time I went backpacking like you, where you'd use the coastal ferries to get from island to island. The second time was by a cru- cruise ship, which weren't there the first time. Oh, what a mess. Just, I, just you couldn't move. Are you talking really about, where, where exactly move. were you? In Greece? No, in Santorini, the island of Santorini. San, Santorini, where's that? Well, it's one of the islands. One of the Greek, one of the Greek islands. It's one, it was okay. one of the Greek islands. Okay, and it was just jam-packed? Yeah, the, see, the first time the cruise ships didn't go there but when I went there. The second time they did, and that just changed, that just ruined everything. Yeah, yeah, so it was not, it, it, you didn't have a good time as a result. Oh, no, correct? I couldn't wait to get off the island. Oh. There was, you know, they were giving free donkey rides up and down the mountain, and it was all donkey doo-doo up and down the mountain. There. You're <laughs> slipping, oh, it was just a mess. Oh, yikes. Oh, man. Okay, Ed, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, some of these destinations are, I think, are a bit overrated. Lisa in Langley. Hi, Lisa. Go ahead. Hi, Lisa. Not there? Lisa. No. Bruce in Richmond. Hi, Bruce. Go ahead. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, I can, Bruce. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. My uh, overrated place is Waikiki. I started going there in the 80s, and it was a nice, pleasant place to go. Uh, I went back about 10 years ago. You can't even walk down the sidewalk. There's so many people. Every restaurant's got an hour lineup to get dinner. Just uh, The beach is just packed. I'd never go back. Have you tried one of the other Hawaiian islands? Oh, yeah, I've been to Maui, but we all know what happened there. Yeah. Yeah, Maui, yeah, I've been to Maui, too. Maui's beautiful, but, yeah, tragic fire. They're still bouncing back from that. Thank you, Bruce. Susan in North Vancouver. Hi, Susan, go ahead. Well, it wasn't overrated, but I went to Buckingham Palace in 2005. I don't travel anymore unless I can drive there because of the pandemic, and I'm too old now. But it wasn't overrated, and you bought the tickets ahead of time. It was crowded. It was packed. You had to go in a lineup, but it was yeah. well worth it. But it was worth London, it. Thank- the city of London, everything in it is well worth the visit, everything. Thank you, Susan. I had some friends who recently visited London, and they they enjoyed Buckingham Palace, too. Sharon in Delta. Hi, Sharon. Go ahead. Hi. Vegas, Las Vegas. The good times, it's just too crowded, too, too commercialized. Everything's all about shopping in high-end stores. Before you could go and spend, uh, literally, we took a roll of quarters, $10, and it would last us from four at night until two in the morning. And then we'd take our winnings, put the 
$10 back in our pocket and out we went. And we did that for years and years. Now it's everything's so expensive. No more 99 cent uh, hot dogs, shrimp cocktails, cheap steak dinners. It's just so commercialized. It's not fun anymore. So, you know, our last trip was a couple of years ago and that's it. Won't go back. Thank you, Sharon. We got more calls Thanks. coming in on this one. You know, we'll just have to do this one again because I think it's a it's a great topic. Yeah, Vegas has changed a lot over the years. It must have been a long time ago, though, if you could gamble all night with a roll of quarters, though. I'm not sure when you could have done that. Long time ago, I suspect. Thanks for all your calls. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.